I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Welcome to this week's episode of Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny, and with me in the ANU studio is Dr. Maria Teflaga, who's a political scientist, of course, with the School of Politics and International Relations, with which I'm also associated. Welcome, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. I hope you had a good weekend. I had a lovely weekend. That's that's good to know. Now, I was watching SBS World News last night, and I saw stories of democratic resilience amid violence and corruption in Nigeria. There was a story about war, the war in Ukraine, how that's going, um, basically a case of a democratic sovereign nation that's under assault from a powerful autocratic neighbour. And then there was uh, the story, ongoing stories that we keep seeing of demonstrations by a broad range of Israeli citizens against that country's hard-right government, which is seeking to weaken judicial independence. Estimates there of 160,000 people on the streets in these Saturday night protests, which have only grown larger in the past eight weeks. Uh, The latter case only serving really to prove that democracies can always come under attack and sometimes from within and that they can never be taken as inevitable. The world's most powerful democracy has shown us this in the past few years. The January 6, 2021 storming of the Capitol by pro-Trump thugs and fanatics was the culmination of a process of institutional shredding that began long before as the vainglorious presidential hopeful Donald Trump rose to dominance in the GOP through 2015 and 16, and he did that really by tearing at the fabric of American democracy, trashing norms of civility, using the internet to bypass bypass orthodox journalism, and really declaring truth itself as a mere perspective, a tool of politics. Someone who has studied these phenomena in detail is Professor Jennifer Stromagalli from Syracuse University's School of Information Studies, and she's also president of the Association for Internet Researchers. And I'm very glad to say that Professor Stromagalli is in Canberra. Welcome to Democracy Sausage. Oh, thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, yeah, well, it's a great privilege, and uh, we, we've of course taken interest in this story, uh, you know, right through. Um, we followed uh, very closely the the last presidential election, and of course, we saw that that, that appalling debacle, which was worse than a debacle because people died, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a constructed event. Uh, there was madness, uh, there was frenzy, there were people who were uh, operating you know, outside of normal rational behaviour, I guess you'd say, but that's not an excuse for it. Um, so 
you're particip- participating, as I said, in an event here, or you're here, and you are, among other things, going to be doing this public event, I think, tomorrow night uh, in the capital, and you're discussing what's called the big lie. So perhaps if I could start there and get you to just talk about that and what you're hoping to do with this uh, with this talk. Well, that's a great question. Um it's a big topic, right? It is, yes. um, and unfortunately, quite consuming, at least for me. I, I have a bit of a Donald Trump obsession, <laughs> which is maybe maybe not healthy, but nevertheless, um, there was there was talk of Trump derangement syndrome that, uh, that, that that I think it actually had some validity. That you know, because you could sort of see it on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post and some other places, CNN, uh, where there was such a focus on Trump mm-hmm. that. You know, there was. I, I well understand your uh, your obsession. I mean, there was a lot to be obsessed about. It was pretty appalling. Well, I think you know, growing up in the pre-internet era, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, and seeing and thinking about how much the information environment has changed. So, you know, if you do a thought experiment and just imagine Donald Trump running for president, say, in 1992. So that was the year that Bill Clinton was elected for the first time. And, you know, we had strong mass media. We had strong journalism. We had fairly good trust in institutions. There was no social media. The Internet was just a kind of a glimmer in the eye of certain corners of the public, but generally not something anybody knew anything about, there is not a snowball's chance in hell that Trump would have gotten elected. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? It it doesn't necessarily mean that he's purely a manifestation of of the internet and of social media, because there have been quite outrageous populists that have bobbed up, uh, Ross Perot, but I mean, you know, going way back before that. You know. I, yes, Ross Perot. There's a, a, a Pat Buchanan is yeah. the candidate that comes to mind for me, who is a populist, also a xenophobe, um, anti-Semite, um, very much a firebrand. And I am sure that if he'd had Twitter, he would have been a much more powerful force than he was back in 1992. But he got shut down early in the political campaign pain because he didn't he didn't meet the norms of what we expect politicians at that time to follow and the weakening i think of these institutions like mainstream journalism enables politicians like trump who also had a massive social media following mm. right? he was a popular figure he was a celebrity and also a massive twitter following and he was so effective at using those um, to be a mouthpiece, really, for his ideology, or not even really ideology. It's more like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was kind of like an opportunity, almost, really, wasn't it? Because he, he he'd been a bit, he'd been basically quite close with New York Democrats for a long time before yes. he sort of, you know, merged into this kind of phenomenon in his own right. Well, yeah, I mean, if you sort of think about it from a, from an institutional level, um, you know, which you've sort of been discussing. I mean, the internet actually kind of um, weakened a, a great number of institutions before someone like Trump could come along and then exploit this environment where those, um, effectively the elites who protected those institutions and the norms kind of governing those institutions um, would, you know, degraded by the fact that the internet has really disrupted all forms of industry and information exchange, like, in, you know, in, in the same way that the cotton mills disrupted traditional agriculture, right? So it's, it's a much bigger thing. Like, you know, Pat Buchanan certainly had access to 
all those crazy radio stations, but that's not the same, is it, you know, because those institutions were in place. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at that time, radio um, was very popular and had a strong reach in the right wing um, kind of information sphere in the United States. But it was fairly pocketed or niched in a way, right? And so that isolation sort of prevented somebody like Buchanan from really having that force that Trump was able to um, capitalize on. And, you know, Trump, he, he, we can definitely talk about the internet, there's a lot to say there, but he was so effective at using news norms against journalists, Mm, mm. his sensationalism, his provocations. I mean, he was sort of a train wreck that you just could not help watching. And that, I, I think, was also kind of remarkable to him. He has... He has, because remember, he's now running again. Um, he just has no shame and no sense of decorum or what's expected as normative, you know, kind of what normatively governs most politicians, right and wrong, true and false. That that doesn't seem to factor for him. No, and, and neither does consistency. I mean, consistency just was never a consideration. He would backflip on things. He would say things that were demonstrably wrong and which were proven to be wrong. I mean, the, you know, the, one of the classics early on in the piece, you know, right from the, the inauguration was the, the, the boast about the number of people who were at his inauguration, which was demonstrably, visibly wrong, you know, yes. a lie. Yeah. Never back down. No, exactly. Never back down. You just keep saying the in the false information over and over and over again, and you get the Fox News um, information sphere to echo. Yeah. Um, because I think that's another dimension to this that didn't exist, say, in 1992. The power of Fox News and that broadcast combined with the radio information sphere, I think, further helped Trump to really capture the imagination, the, um, I, you know, I hate to say following, but I think there is almost a cult following to some degree um, of Trump supporters. They live in an information bubble. And there's research that suggests this. They tend to consume less variety of news sources. Well, I'm glad to see that you've done your own research. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's actually one of their great sort of tropes, isn't it? That, uh, you know, in this age that people are able to do that, uh, find information that suits whatever their worldview is. and, uh, And that's what they've been invited to do through, through that Fox media and through Trump's whole, that whole model. Yep. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a wonderful um, entrepreneur, right? Like, um, and and the literature might talk about norm entrepreneurs or, or policy entrepreneurs, and he's sort of like a uh, a different type of a political entrepreneur. entrepreneur, right? Like, the 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 conditions and the opportunity structure were sort of like well established for him. Like, it was sort of like if you think about it, like the right time. Like, he was able to kind of manipulate that outsider frame in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible in 1992, for example. Um, you know, he's essentially a salesman and that's how he behaves. So, he actually – so, it doesn't really matter. So, therefore, it's never troubled him that he doesn't meet the norms because – He's he's not even thinking on that level. He's just thinking about amplification, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas everyone else is sort of thinking we're playing the news game and the politics game and he's playing the eyeballs game, right? Yeah, it's a good um, point. It's, yeah. So he sees winning the presidency through the frame of his book, The Art of the Deal, that, yeah. that whole thing. It was about the transaction itself. Mm-hmm. Get there, do that. Everything then becomes a whole set of series, a whole series of subsequent transactions yeah. in 
information. doesn't matter if it's true or false. It just matters whether it serves the purpose. And we can kind of see this in some of his behaviour after the fact, which seems to be around uh, like some of the things they did to accrue cash, right? You know, like using the presidency to, to enrich themselves and the fact that they're worried about the sort of the IRS and the tax implications of all of this because, I mean, honestly, was it really ever actually about governing? You know, do, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, what I'm sort of reminded by is just how bad for democracy that is, though, mm-hmm. right? When When there are no grounds on which we all can agree that there's a truth. Mm. Um, you know, I think about policy debates. In order to have a policy debate, there has to be some basic shared reality that all parties can come to and point to and say, yes, we agree on this part. Then there will be lots of disagreement on a number of dimensions of that. But there has to be some foundation of truth. And in Trump world, there just isn't. And I don't know. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this challenge for democracy and policymaking when um, there's just no there's no basis of truth. And, you know, we're watching right now the continued analysis of the January 6th attack. And um, there's now been a release of uh, Fox News emails from the hosts of Fox. Um, so Brett Baer and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram around a lawsuit that one of the um, ballot machine companies is uh, pushing against Fox News. Um, the company's called Dominion and they make ballot machines and Trump, um, as well as some of these actors I just mentioned, attacked Dominion mm. for um, participating in the big lie. And um, Yeah, they were party to this Democrat conspiracy that was going to rob him of the presidency. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you can see through this reporting that behind the scenes, folks like Tucker Carlson were saying that, in fact, the big lie, these claims that Trump had won the election were completely BS, if mm. I can say that. Is you that can okay? say oh, BS, yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. say that. I'm, I'm, I, have a, I have to watch myself. Yeah. DT <laughs> speaks BS. That's, that, we'll all accept that proposition. Good enough. Uh, it's good, so, rigorous academic yeah, language. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, so the, you have this um, front stage, if you will, this performance by the Fox News and Donald Trump ecosystem reproducing these stories that are completely patently false at the same time that they know that they're completely mm. false. And so, but the illusion is what matters. The story that they're telling to their public, to their followers, is the only thing that matters. And that is just so bad for democracy. It is. And I think the, I mean, for me, my, my background is journalistic, right? So uh, I'm, I'm very conscious of the, sort of watching these, these developments happen. They've happened to a lesser degree in Australia, but they have happened in the same in the UK and, and other democracies. And the, the, the sort of almost underappreciated role that partisan media play in dragging the sort of centre point of journalism, of public discourse to the right yep. uh, is quite quite amazing. So you do get these um, corollary broadcasters, the ones who are uh, seen like in MSNBC or, or, or CNN or whatever who are who are kind of contesting directly the, the right, they seem to become sort of almost more partisan on the left. But the centre of gravity itself is also affected because there is this whole 
legitimization really of these bizarre conspiracy theories of these of these uh, of the flaws in all these institutions the media themselves become part of the the attack uh, as as constructed by the right orthodox media are seen as part of the problem, mm-hmm. uh, and they then have to compensate for that. They have to operate in a market where a significant number of people are seeing them as, uh, you know, as, as as partisan. Everyone becomes a partisan, yes. and that's what Trump did really very well. Was he basically turned every hostile question at a press conference? Not that he did that many of them, but but every every probing question at a press conference became motivated by uh, some partisan left leaning agenda. And that's what his supporters saw. Uh, that's an extraordinarily corrosive process. So that really good journalism basically dies in that space, or at least it's it dies as a mainstream project. And that's the important point. Absolutely. I mean, there just ends up being no uh, information stream, if you will, in the political space that is providing neutral information. Everything is read through a partisan lens. Yeah, nothing's neutral. Correct. Yeah. That's right. And that's what allows then these claims um, of, you know, fake news. I, that 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 attack has been so problematic, I think, um, again, going back to further corroding democracy, when people can't trust any of the news outlets, unless it fits their ideology, mm. um, then, you know, we know that people don't necessarily completely filter into um, kind of uh, filter bubbles or ecosystems of only partisan information. But we do know that people who are in the U.S. more right-leaning tend to consume fewer different sources than, say, on the left or the middle. And they tend to view anything that looks mainstream, like, say, CNN or New York Times or Washington Post, as necessarily partisan and therefore Mm. suspicious and doubtful. One of the things that so, – so I'm a political institutionalist, just to give you some Excellent. Some, some background, right? And, and you know, I, and I, I mostly focus on um, Westminster systems and, and Australia in particular. Um, and so as an outsider, one of the things that really strikes me about um, potentially what has gone on in the US is – I mean, I guess it's a bit of an unfair question to you, but do you think that – that the the fact that the um the the way your electoral system is constructed and the fact that it is by global standards not very well administered you know like effectively the the foxes are in charge of the hen house in terms of voting regulation um and that voting rights are unequal across the country and that the 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 voting system is centrifugal creating these two two big parties that have to do the job of representing everyone and you got so many elections all the time right i mean do you do you think that apart from that it's good <laughs> yeah, I'm painting, painting a very bleak picture, but I guess, you know, you're talking a lot about this sort of individual level psychological information processing problems. I mean, do you think, and and I'm an institutionalist, so, you know, institutions are my nail or my hammer or whichever the way that works. But <laughs> but I guess, I, I guess I'm, yeah, I'd like, I'm, can you tell us like if you think that, Am I overreading into this, or do you think this is a critical part of the story? You know, the the, the inherent design of the U.S. system. You know, it ha- is it? Um, how is that potentially interacted with these norm breakdowns that you're talking about in this new kind of media environment? Or I am am I barking up the wrong tree? So I am very sympathetic to institutionalist interpretations of the environment that we have today. I mean, it's you know, it's complex, right? You have individuals who are making decisions based on incomplete information when they go to the ballot box. But how we structure 
the ballot box and that whole experience of elections. Um, you know, we are a two party system. That two party system is reinforced by the the voting system, the economic system that we have around fundraising and uh, campaigning. You remember we have ridiculously long campaign uh, seasons. Donald Trump started campaigning in 2016 for 2020. So mm. four years, mm. he was effectively both president and candidate, which also, again, is out of the norms. But it's not out of the norm for um, politicians at the presidential level to be announcing now. So Nikki Haley, who um, announced uh, two weeks ago that she's going to run for president, right? This is a full more than two years out from the election. So it's because he's already announced as well and she wanted to not leave him sitting out there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, but it makes for a very long election season, which is also very odd. And I don't know of any other system in the US, in the country, rather the globe, there we go, that that really works this way. I mean, it, it's you know, there have been moments through history in U.S. history where we've had multiple parties, but they tend to be just moments in time. And often when there's fissures in our political system. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting question to me. I do feel that we are at a um, kind of a pivotal moment. And it's not clear to me what our democracy looks like and how it will function. I don't see any viable third parties, for example, mm. at this moment. There's none that really cropped up. Not like there was back in 1982 mm. when we had um, the Reform Party from Ross Perot. But there is, um, I think, institutionally, we are structured to facilitate or foster this two-party system. Um, you know, we have such a strong First Amendment free speech stance that really um, – means that some of the policies, especially again around campaign finance reform and campaigning, that just kind of leave it, I don't know, enabling just those two parties to succeed. Yeah. I mean, you know, you were talking about shared norms earlier, right? And when you've got like a shared agreed vision of reality, shared norms, shared ideas about like ultimately what the actual poles of the institutional conflict is when sorting out policy um, solutions, having only two parties that are, that are good or effective interest aggregators is really efficient. You know, like you should get stuff done. So, so it's, so I don't, I don't want to leave listeners with the idea that, you know, it's, it's just that these institutional things, like it, it is sort of what you're saying, right? It's this interaction effect that, that drives it. Anyway, I'll, I'll just stop. It's a good, a good time to take a break, I think. Uh, you're with uh, Democracy Sausage, of course, comes to you from the ANU, uh, and uh, you just heard the voice of Dr. Maria Tuflaga. Also with me is Professor Jennifer Stroma-Galley from Syracuse University in the US. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment and continue this very fascinating discussion about uh, uh, the political machinery, the political culture, the internet, and all of those forces together. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. 
Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, it's really, I think we were at an interesting point in the discussion, Maria, because uh, I, I think what I was interpreting from your question, what, what your question made me think about was that we see this dramatic impact on the political culture as a result of social media. And in a sense, I think your question sort of invites us to think about whether we will see changes to the political machinery as a result of the way information flows and those political culture. And you were sort of touching on that, I think, Jenny, with with what you were saying. And it's a bit hard to know whether that will be the case. But, you know, when we think about uh, these questions in Australia, we, we have compulsory voting. We have preferential voting. We do have a pretty stable two-party system. Mm-hmm. And we've often thought it's more stable than it turns out to be. We, at, in the last election, only last year, less than a year ago, we saw the emergence of a whole raft of independents come in in safe constituencies of the Conservative Party, uh, arguing on progressive heads of policy like climate change, uh, treatment of women, uh, corruption or integrity in politics, these kinds of things. Um, we'll see how that goes. We've also seen the growth of the Greens Party, which has been mostly in the upper house. But it's interesting to sort of imagine uh, how these changes in in the way information flows, the way politics is understood by people and and, and engaged with by people, which the internet invites, uh, we see a lot of negatives, which is what we're really talking about here, but it also has some, some positives. And that may have a downstream effect on uh, even the electoral machinery, the laws about uh, access to voting, for example. I mean, voting access in the US is is a disaster, really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be impolite. So mean. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so politicised. It's, it's so politicised, so restricted. Yes. And well, it's so inconsistent state to state. It is. And that's, you know, one of the, the kind of funny artifacts of the way our, our electoral system is structured is that it's all driven by the states. So there is no federal voting system. Each state is uh, has its own uh, process um, for how it determines who has access to the ballot box and um, how the voting process will even unfold. And so, and it's hard whenever I teach my students, especially my international students, they always get very puzzled by this because it seems like what a strange and efficient system. You know, the one upside to it though um, is that in states where you have more progressive perspectives, you have a much more active and egalitarian, if you will, voting system. So Minnesota, for example, was my home state and South Dakota, but we won't talk about South Dakota, <laughs> cowboy country. But Minnesota, uh, grew, um, when I grew up, it was a very progressive state. And so uh, you could come and vote on election day as long as you had some evidence that you lived in the state. And so much, much higher voting rates, whereas, you know, states like Georgia or Florida or Texas have really, you know, continued to work hard to restrict voting, especially by black and brown people. Yeah, and it's become much more of a politi- – it's, it's very much – politicized. It's on you know, the taxonomy of, of the rules, really – reflect uh, those political arguments Absolutely. so they're Absolutely. trying to stop people i mean they're pretending that it's that it's that it's open but they've got all these restrictions Absolutely yeah you know the other thing going back to institutions to throw yet another variable into the mix here of mm. things to think about that will be changing the 
the the ecosystem that we're in is the the voice of young people. Mm. So you know, I am in the United States. Young people tend to be substantially more progressive than their elder generations. And you know, baby boomers still control politics in the United States. Look, Donald Trump is going to be seventy what? Mm. Um, George Biden is George. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a Freudian slip. That's yeah. funny. Joe Biden. I think he's seventy-eight. No, he's eighty. Oh my yeah. lord! See, yeah. you know better than I do. So I'd sort of like just put my head down because it it is sort of you know that is a, a generation that experienced a very different world, and the generation you know look. I have daughters that are 13. One of them probably twice a month breaks down in tears around fears about global warming and mm, climate change yeah. and what that will mean for her family, for her future. And I think for our, you know, the generation coming of age now, their passions, the things that worry them are significant and profound. And there is much to be worried about and advocating for. And so- and they're so effective with social media. And I do see that, you know, at some point, the United States, the, the baby broom, boomers grip will finally ease. And um, Gen Xers like me, hopefully we won't have much of a stake in politics because we're pretty cynical of all things. But the next generation after us, the millennials and these Gen Zers, you know, I think they have a lot of ambition and vision. And, um, and I hope that they have hope because we are going to need it. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, we've even seen some discussions uh, recently in this country about lowering the voting age from 18 to possibly 17 or 16 even. And I personally support this idea. Uh, I know it's pretty radical, but uh, th for the for the reasons you just outlined, frankly, that uh, w when you look at an issue like climate change, its implications for, for, for the life of someone who's 16, 17, 18 years old are much greater than the implications for someone like me. Uh, and uh, there's a lot when you, when you look at the level of of political understanding of engagement with the issues from a number of voters, it's not like engaged sixteen to seventeen year olds shouldn't be allowed uh, you know shouldn't be allowed to exercise a democratic right because they're not up to it. They're up to it, all right. I'm not surprised that a lot of people don't want them to vote as well because, as you say, they tend to be more progressive. Yeah, it's an interesting um, kind of question for democracies because if you think about a country like Australia, when it was federated as a nation in 1901, life expectancy was around 60 years, which is why the age pension was set at 65 mm -hmm. because the government didn't really want to be paying the pension to people. Now life expectancy is, I think, 83 and 87 um, respectively. And so, I mean, you know, and I, 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 I think it's, it's important to sort of be careful about how we sort of discuss this issue because I, I think it's important not to – disenfranchise, um, you know, older Australians who already are facing significant forms of discrimination and um, a lack of inclusion through the sort of digital revolution, yes, information yes. revolution that is kind of underway. But, you know, traditionally society has kind of solved um, some of these sticky problems through natural attrition, i.e. old people dying and young people taking their place. God to put too fine a point on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, to be kind of kind of explicit, not, use, not to use euphemisms. But, you know, we're living in societies now where people are living for a lot longer. And so I think it does actually kind of give a new energy to how do you actually bring – young voices back into the discussion, particularly when 
um, they actually are facing all these downside risks. And what we kind of know about how humans process information and, you know, how socialization, political socialization works, right? Like people don't tend to shift much. They just sort of slowly tend to shift in one direction towards like greater conservatism if they acquire more goods. Like that's basically how it goes. Um, and so, yeah, these are, these are problems that are just, that are facing any any polity where life expectancy is going up, it's not just a question for your country, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it raises questions. So there's been um, some new discussion again with this new Congress that we have about term limits. Um, so, you know, the president can only serve for two terms, but we don't have term limits at the Senate or the House level. And so that's a renewed discussion, I think, is with the idea being that that might enable new voices to come into the policy debates. So we'll see where that where that conversation goes. Yes, it's uh, it's it's quite interesting that whole that whole debate about uh, about voting age and uh, participation and so forth. It, it it makes me think about you were sort of touching on this before in in the early part of the the discussion um, about the manifestation of Trump through twenty fifteen and then victory in twenty sixteen and and how he did it and I mean and I think Maria made a bit of a reference to this as well. The preconditions of this are this this sort of farming of outsider resentment and speaking directly to a bunch of people who are essentially on the outside of these institutions or at least on the outside of their norms. They don't necessarily share the norms. They just sort of obeyed them, as it were. They were, they were told them. And then Trump comes along and says, you can forget all of that. And he's speaking to a level of resentment that exists in particularly white working class areas, after basically forty years of of no wages growth in real terms, mm-hmm. and of course of, of a lot of globalization. I mean, he was always going on about China um, during the <laughs> during the uh, primaries and and uh, and then his debates with Hillary and so forth, which were also a a, a disgrace, you know, frankly, in so many ways. Um, uh, but um, yeah, resentment is a is something that you, if you're looking at the stability of a polity, you need to manage. And there's a lot of resentment in younger people, frankly, in our uh, economy at the moment, in our polity, over questions like chi- uh, climate change mm-hmm. and and um, and the treatment of women and a number of these other questions. So you know they need to be dealt with as well. And I I don't know. One of the things that we notice that's different from our politics from yours. I mean, there are many things, but one of them that we, we were sort of getting at there really is that. We don't have people who are 80 years old in office. We don't have even really anyone who's 70 years old um, as a general rule in our politics. Whereas not so long ago, I'm talking just a few years ago, that the the main lodestars in American politics were Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, uh, Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, every single one of them. I mean, Hillary was 69, I think, when she was running, so she was going to be into her 70s then, and and all the rest of them were beyond that. And I think Nancy Pelosi is now 82. She's, you know, she's bowed out finally, but it's quite different from from Australian politics in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. And it, um, so it'll be interesting, you know, I think about the, um, going back to the, um, the rhetoric and the resentment that, Trump, I think, really effectively capitalized on. Gallup did this really complex polling in, in the 2016 election and looking at, you know, what were some of the differences that exist for voters? Um, so were there, you know, and one of the stories that comes out of the election as well, it was white working class Americans that were more likely to vote for Trump than Clinton. But it's more complex than that. Right. It's actually people who 
reported feeling that their children would be worse off than they are today. And it turns out that those people who tend to feel that their children will be worse off are in communities where there's been substantial shifts in population, specifically immigrants, or what appear to be immigrants coming into their communities. And, um, you know, and I think Trump really effectively with his anti-immigrant, xenophobic, racist rhetoric really spoke to people who have who may not themselves call themselves or think of themselves as racist, but are looking at their communities and how they've changed and feeling that it's not the same as it was when they grew up. And importantly, he gave them permission to do that. He gave them permission to say it. Absolutely. And uh, we saw a bit of that in Australia with the emergence of a a politician, an independent uh, in the 1996 election. Her name was Pauline Hanson, but she started talking about Asian immigration and so forth. And uh, the prime minister, new prime minister at the time, John Howard, was criticised for not speaking out clearly enough against this kind of language, and and you know the the general critique was that this had given a level of permission for people to start expressing these kinds of resentment. So absolutely, yeah, yeah and that's again this the I think that's one of the biggest concerns I still have as this residual effect that Trump's anti-normative discourse will continue to have on our politics. It takes a long time to reestablish norms. Yeah, and we, we're talking about, in some cases, just simple politenesses that that that, that kind of kept the temperature of discourse at a, at a reasonable level. Basic respect, yeah. right? Just having some basic respect. So one of the things that Trump effectively did was attack opponents. So, yes. you know, and he made it okay to call people really awful names, especially women, mm. and to make that okay. Yeah. And and so you see then the temperature, if you will, of, mm. of the public discourse much more antagonistic yeah, and febrile. hostile. Yeah. And again, I, in a two-party system, back to the institutionalism, in a two-party system, if there's going to be any policymaking, there has to be some common ground. So beyond facts, there also has to be some basic respect. And if the two sides effectively hate each other, then how on earth do you govern? Because governing requires concession. Concession means sitting down in a room with people that have differences of perspective and finding some pathway to agreement. It's a plural project, isn't it? It is, yeah. 100%. And, you know, our primary, going back to structures, our primary system in particular, I think, especially privileges this kind of extremism that we see because very few people vote during our primaries. And the primaries happen, so in the political party, so for the Democratic Party, actually it'll take Republican Party at the moment since we just talked about Nikki Haley. So Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, and I expect some others are going to throw their hats Ron in the DeSantis, ring. Ron yeah. DeSantis. will throw their hats in the ring to uh, vie for the Republican nomination. And if they win the nomination, then they'll then they'll compete in the general election against whomever is the nominee from the Democratic Party. So it's kind of the two parties um, picking their their representative then to to run for election in the general. And so the problem is, is that because we don't have compulsory voting, um, turnout rates for primaries can be as low as 10%. And so that means really the most committed and ardent uh, partisans tend to show up for primaries. And that privileges then more extreme politicians in the primaries. But then when they get to the general election, they in theory then have to pivot to become more general so they can speak to the larger masses. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And it's it's a very tricky dance. And 
what you see, especially on the on the Republican side, is that more moderate Republicans are being primaried out. So uh, Liz Cheney, who is a senator, mm. uh, sorry, representative from Wyoming, daughter of Dick Cheney, one of the more conservative um, kind of hawks that existed in our yeah. uh, political system in the 1990s, you know, staunch Republican family, she got primaried out mm. because she you know, pushed for Trump to be impeached. And of course, she led the hearings uh, against Trump and the January 6th riots. And so she's out. She's yeah. out of a job. And that that tells Republican office holders that if they don't walk the line of extreme partisanship, then they risk losing their seats. And this is actually and Trump did that a lot all the way through his presidency. He was he was making very clear who would be on the outer if they didn't vote this way on this matter or or, or come out strongly publicly Absolutely. in support of him. And that's why there was so much watching of his nominees in the 2022 midterm elections that we just had for House and Senate and some attorneys general and other races. And you know he didn't fare very well, so his nominees didn't actually tend to mm. win their races. So that's weakened him. Which he immediately <laughs> blamed Melania for, I think. Yes. <laughs> well, it couldn't be him. No, no limit to his character. Yeah, no, it couldn't Blames be Trump. It's, yeah, she's the one who picked the losers. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things that fascinated me watching the the, the train wreck that was Trump as he, as he came in. And his, I love his, how you use the past tense. <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm an optimist. I, 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 I I'm. I'm assuming that he won't make it back, but uh, you know, I know there's a school of thought that says that he basically owns the GOP, that he's still the you know the the, the, the presumptive uh, candidate. We'll see about we'll see. that. Yeah, yep. it, and it will be interesting to see the extent to which what candidates he's up against are dragged into kind of Trump territory in order to try and beat him. But no, what what really fascinated me, uh, and this sort of partly goes to your thing about the institutional or the norms of politics, Maria, is the way Trump and this – we need, in a, in a sense, to get back to social media. The way Trump used Twitter as as president, it completely re removed all of the filters that normally would exist from the president making public statements. They would normally be the matter of discussion with the chief of staff, media advisors, specialists in the particular area that was being discussed. There would be – a great deal of thought that would go into the timing of any particular comment that a president might make, all of that went out the window with Trump literally just tweeting himself, Kavefi or whatever it was at one stage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was, yeah. there was some... Those were the days. Yeah, some, and, you know, I heard people make the point that, you know, they'd sort of wake up with horror to see what it was that, you know, he'd, he'd sort of decided to tweet after yeah. sitting there watching TV all night, you know, yep. watching Fox. Watching Fox. Well, yeah. Th thankfully, I think no one actually thought that was a good example of executive um, governance, you know. <laughs> no, but it's stripped it stripped out a lot of the artifice oh, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. protections in a sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what is kind of interesting, um, like listening to you to you both talk, is that if we if we actually think about this in, in like really long run terms, right? Like, you know, the days of like yellow journalism, i.e., um, like yeah. highly partisan newspapers, right? On on one level, we've sort of returned to to that, you know, like 
you know, we had like um, highly centralized media and, and, and pretty collective um, structured debates and narratives run by elites. And then, you know, elites started to sort of break out of the sort of stranglehold of newspaper editors, like from the 19, like, well, 30s, right? Speaking directly to the people on radio, speaking directly to the people on TV, whilst controlling their parties ever more and social. And the internet has exploded that centralizing set of forces and has basically like re-democratized it all but it's also kind of unleashed all of these crazy and unpredictable sort of forces and so you know yes there are all these kinds of dangerous forces out there but there's actually a great deal of potential right like you know your 13 year old daughter she's clearly like very energized you know perhaps my two-year-old will be part of these movements that seek to kind of reclaim some of these this this sort of space there's like a great deal of of potential there um I'm trying to be a bit more upbeat after being <laughs> rather a downer in the, well, in the on, first yeah, half I, I i agree with that in principle but I, you know it doesn't have of, to be good no to, to retask jenny's point before i mean one also could ask would hitler's fanatical uh, anti-Semitism have been much more dangerous in an internet age? Would it have gone quickly beyond Germany into uh, into every polity and 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 caused even worse outcomes? It's it's possible because we got all of those Trump tweets, you know, sitting in Australia. We weren't part of it, but anyone who was interested, you, this stuff goes all around the world. It's not it's not sort of country specific. It's, it's a dangerous uh, it's a dangerous tool in the hands of demagogues who. Uh, have the right issue and exist at the right time. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's interesting the the power of that distributed, um, unfiltered communication. I came of age as a researcher in the 1990s, and I had so much hope and optimism for how new voices. Right. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, the mainstream media felt like it controlled the perspectives and it sort of served corporate interests and the internet potentially was going to open that all up right yeah. and enable anybody to have a voice without having to have expensive equipment like we're looking at here right now and the access right the means to production suddenly you didn't need those anymore you could just uh, create a little blog page mm -hmm. and start writing those words and hopefully you gather a little audience and before you know it you're a micro celebrity <laughs> and you know it's you know it's tricky because i think on the one hand we do there is some benefit to having filters that is there is some benefit to having some institutionalized gatekeepers people who are helping us sort out the wheat from the chaff the bs from the good information um the emotions sometimes from the more considered yeah the emo you know like the sort of gut reaction or or something that's a bit more considered and processes that you know, baffles in the in 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 the in between when someone thinks of something and when it actually makes it into the public realm. Well, and so this Perhaps is where that bad. I think that we don't. I don't know how to put this. We tend to lump all social media together, and I actually think that's a problem because if you imagine a world without Twitter, so you mentioned Twitter, right? This is the where you were getting you know these tweets from Trump. I think Twitter has been bad for democracy all told. Uh, Facebook, remember MySpace before that, mm. YouTube, actually YouTube has some issues in part because of the algorithms. So the Twitter with its very short, once upon a time was 140 characters and there was 280 characters, but 140 characters, one cannot produce any meaningful argument in 140 characters. It is distilled sound bites and emotion. 
that's what gets channeled through Twitter. Facebook, at least, right? So, you know, the the structure of Facebook enables longer posts and it's network-based focused on your community first, right? So typically when people started their Facebook accounts or even their Instagram accounts, they start with the people they know. Whereas Twitter from the very beginning was sort of this anonymous, ethereal um, public of people who you did not necessarily know that you could sort of outrage to. And so, you know, Twitter as outrage medium, I think, was quite effective, but also really caustic to democratic discussion and any kind of reasoning. You just cannot reason in 140 characters. And yeah, yeah, find threads. The reality is that for the most part, people just post those little short bursts of emotion and anger and outrage. And that is not healthy for democracies. If Twitter had never come along, I think we would look differently today in democratic, democratically organized countries around the world. Well, luckily we've got truth social or whatever it's called, <laughs> you know, to sort of yes. correct. Truth social, gab, parlor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. But they're also all structured on those very short, yeah. Um, yeah. and I don't think that's accidental. No, it isn't, although I must say, uh, like we shouldn't treat all social media uh, as the same. We probably shouldn't treat all social media users uh, in that way, because I, I know as a long-term user of Twitter, I've I've avoided that kind of um, emotive or, you know, the abusive stuff that a lot of people, including some of my colleagues, dropped into. And I always thought that was bad. I thought it was corrosive to the fabric of discourse in a way that all of these other things we've been talking about have been. And I don't, you know, I've not participated in that. And I think there have been plenty of people who've used it for good as well to, you know, to plug debates, to to um, offer different perspectives and so forth. And so there's some good, but but yes, I think in net terms, it, it's ended up increasing the temperature without necessarily increasing the, the Likes rigor. or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to wrap up now because we're, uh, you know, pretty, pretty well, uh, as long as we would, uh, you know, I think politely uh, expect our listeners to, to stay with us. But, you know, it's been such a great discussion, Professor Jennifer Stromagalli, really, really great to have you in the studio. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you very much. This is a fun conversation. And we'll look forward to your uh, the, the event that you're doing tomorrow night in Canberra. And uh, uh, Maria? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming. You And, you know, you're jet lag, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll look forward to talking to you again from the Australian National University again next week. Bye for now. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,